0: Jesus Christ is coming again. He taught that very thing in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. It's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Mark 13. I've told you everything in advance. Mark 13, we are going to look at the second coming of Jesus Christ and look at things related to his second coming as we move through the gospel of Mark. This is where we are as we've been going verse by verse through the gospel. We've come to Mark 13. Mark 13 is a parallel along with Luke 21 and Matthew 24. These three chapters make up what's called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is a big way of saying, it's a sermon that was delivered by Jesus as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Interesting location when he gave the sermon, the Mount of Olives is to the east of the current Temple Mount. If you look from the east and you look towards the Mount, the, you're on the east, you look towards the Temple Mount, it's a great view, it's, it's quite an exhilarating view and it's down that, that road that Jesus made his triumphal entry. When Jesus made his triumphal entry, he gave a prophecy. It's recorded in Luke 1944. He wept over the city, even though they were celebrating him as blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He wept over the city because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. And he said, he he made a prophecy in Luke 1944, and he said that not one stone would be left upon another that would not be thrown down. It's a staggering prophecy, especially in light of what he was talking about. He was talking about the temple precincts that actually made up one-sixth of the old city of Jerusalem. If you've been watching the news, Israel's on fire right now. There's all kinds of fires, something like 250 fires, I guess, that have been set in Israel. The Israeli fire department's trying to deal with it. Israel, uh, we're told in the book of Zechariah, will become a cup of trembling for all the nations. Anybody who's ever studied prophecy, if you consider yourself a prophecy buff, this will be a message for you because we're gonna talk about predictive prophecy. We're gonna talk about the end times, the city of Jerusalem, and the famous words that Jesus shared in these three sections. They all, they're all parallel each other. They're, they're the same uh, uh, sermon that's given with just a little bit of different variation. And let's, uh, let's pray before we do anything further. Father, we come before you right now. Um, As a people hungry to hear from you, help me to get out of your way so that you might speak. Your word is alive and it's profitable. Every portion of it, every part of it, profits the believer, edifies and exhorts. And Lord, we wanna have ears to hear what you have to say. We wanna discern the times and we also wanna discern the scriptures. We don't wanna just say that we're newspaper theologians or those who study eschatology just by the newspaper. We wanna let the Bible speak. But we certainly look at current events and they pique our interest as well, just thinking about the things that regard the last days. But all in all, Father, what we wanna say right now is just help us as we study your word, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that's ready to receive what you have to say to us. And I pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Behold, I've told you everything in advance. One of the remarkable things about the Bible, among many things that we could talk about, is predictive prophecy. Now, prophecy is a word that has two primary meanings. Prophecy means to speak forth the word of God. So you could say it is forthtelling. But prophecy also has a unique aspect in Scripture, which is foretelling. This is what we call predictive prophecy. The Old Testament is filled with predictions, predictions that have to do with the fall of nations and have to do with Israel and surrounding nations. And the Old Testament is filled with what's called Messianic prophecy. That is prophecy written sometimes 500 as much as 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, predicting his birthplace. Micah 5.2 said he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah writes 700 years before Jesus was born. The book of Isaiah is filled with prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah 7.14 says that he will be born of a virgin. That pretty much narrows the the people who could qualify for the Messiah. You'll look for a woman who has never known a man to have a baby, that's pretty specific. But there's another interesting aspect about prophecy that we need to understand, and it's this. Sometimes prophecies have dual fulfillments. An example I just gave is Isaiah 7.14. It said that Emmanuel, this one Emmanuel, would be born of a virgin. But in the immediate lifetime of the prophet Isaiah, there was a child that's talked about in the very next verse. And some of that, those words are fulfilled in his lifetime, in the immediate life of the prophet and his wife and his family. However, Matthew picks up the idea of Emmanuel in Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23, and calls Jesus Emmanuel and says he will be born of a virgin. The Bible has many instances which have dual fulfillment. This is gonna be relevant to the Olivet Discourse or the words of Jesus in Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24 because I believe what we're gonna see in this sermon is a dual fulfillment. Some of the things that Jesus talks about, there's no doubt happen in the lifetime of the apostles and primarily at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 but there's gonna be other things that look well beyond the time period of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and look to the future, even our future, and we'll talk about that in a moment. As we look at the dual fulfillment of prophecy, we can see this, for example, in another place in Psalm 22. David wrote Psalm 22, and some of that psalm has to do with David's immediate lifetime. David suffered many things. He was harassed by Saul. He was chased by enemies. His life was threatened. Yet Psalm 22 is ultimately a prophecy about Jesus on the cross. We can see those, those specific things, like they would pierce my hands and my feet. They would wag their heads at me and so forth. All of this applies to David in his immediate lifetime, at least some of it. And to Jesus, ultimately, Psalm 22 is an example. Here's another one. David was told in 2 Samuel 7, you can write down verses 9 through 16, that his son would have a throne forever. Now the one that sat on David's throne that followed him in the reign of uh, Israel is Solomon. David's son Solomon sat on his throne. But David was promised in this famous section where it promises that the, his throne will be upheld forever, that his son would sit on his throne and that throne would last forever. In Luke 1, and 33, if you're taking notes, it says that Jesus fulfills that. He's the greater David, the son of David, and his throne will last forever. So in the immediate lifetime of David, there was a fulfillment of Solomon, but there's an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Now what's extremely relevant in dual fulfillment to our subject matter is something called the day of the Lord. If you have a concordance or you like to search out concepts or words in the Bible, type in the day of the Lord. You will see this mentioned scores of times in the Old and New Testament. The day of the Lord is seen by scholars as a day when Yahweh judges and rescues his people. And oftentimes the day of the Lord is depicted in what's called ancient fulfillments. Here's an example, in the book of Joel, the book of Joel is all about the day of the Lord, there was a locust plague that happened in the time of Joel. It was a thick locust plague. It's recorded in Joel chapter one. And it devastated the land and there was darkness and devastation and it was called the day of the Lord. One writer calls the locust plague in the book of Joel the day of the Lord in embryo. A foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord when God will come, Jesus will come and he will judge the world, rescue his people and judge the world. So those were foreshadowings. The book of Joel, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, many other scriptures I could give you. But there's another place there's a, where there's a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord and it's this. It's found in the plagues of Egypt. How many plagues happened to Egypt? Ten plagues. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. It was dark three days in Egypt. In Goshen, it was light, but it was dark there. And it was a darkness, the Bible describes in the book of Exodus as a darkness that people could feel. Nobody moved. It was just a terrifying darkness. And that darkness was the ninth plague. Preceding the tenth plague, the tenth plague was what? Bible students, the death of the firstborn. And the Israelites were told, put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and your lentil, put it on your door, and I'm going to pass over Egypt, God says that night, and if I see the blood, I will not judge that household. And in Egypt, there wasn't one house where somebody wasn't dead. God did judge the Egyptians, but if you had the blood applied to your door, the Lord passed over you. He didn't judge. There's another Passover coming, call it a second passover where the lord jesus is coming again and he's going to judge the world in righteousness and the ones who will not be judged are the ones who have the blood of the lamb jesus christ applied to their household interesting when you applied the blood in the ancient days they would do this on the two side posts they'd apply the blood and they'd put it on the top of the door and it's been remarked that it would make a sign of the cross This is how predictive prophecy often works, not always, sometimes it just has a single fulfillment, but oftentimes in the Bible, predictive prophecy is so amazing that it's fulfilled on several levels. Now I'm introducing the message this way so that you can understand that there's a debate going on and if you run in any of these circles, you study this stuff, here's what the debate is. People who look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 and the other sections I've mentioned to you, some are arguing that it's already been fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, that none of Jesus' words have any relevance to a modern-day audience, that they've all been fulfilled, and they're called extreme preterists, and let me just define the word preterism, and you might be saying, Pastor Michael, all these big words, hang with me now. Preterism simply means past. So a preterist believes that that all of that discourse was fulfilled in the past. I don't know why theologians are always coming up with big words. Why don't we just say past? We can say preterism. All right? Okay, so here's what they say. Now there are some preterists that hold that much of Jesus' sermon from the Mount of Olives was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, but not all of it. And they will apply portions to the future. And then there are some people that think it's largely towards the future. I will tell you... Hey folks, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. And we'll be back to the message in just a moment. We've been doing a Sunday night service called 633. And in it, we've been looking at a subject called the dark dangers of the occult. The occult speaks of that which is hidden, secret, literally occluded, behind the veil. People are fascinated with these subjects, but God warned in both the Old and New Testament that the occult is something that is forbidden and even dangerous. We want you to have access to these resources to teach you more about the occult so you can tell people who are dabbling in it or messing with it about the hope and the love and the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. You can access this information at our website, walkintruth.com. This is how predictive prophecy often works, not always, sometimes it just has a single fulfillment, but oftentimes in the Bible, predictive prophecy is so amazing that it's fulfilled on several levels. Now I'm introducing the message this way so that you can understand that there's a debate going on and if you run in any of these circles, you study this stuff, here's what the debate is. People who look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 and the other sections I've mentioned to you, some are arguing that it's already been fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. That none of Jesus' words have any relevance to a modern day audience. That they've all been fulfilled, and they are called extreme preterists. And let me just define the word preterism. And you might be saying, Pastor Michael, all these big words. Hang with me now. Preterism simply means past. So a preterist believes that, that all of that discourse was fulfilled in the past. I don't know why theologians are always coming up with big words. Why don't we just say past? We can say preterism. All right. Okay, so here's what they say. Now, there are some preterists that hold that much of Jesus' sermon from the Mount of Olives was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, but not all of it. And they will apply portions to the future. And then there are some people that think it's largely towards the future. I will tell you, I believe it's both. I believe that there was a fulfillment in the immediate lifetime of the apostles of Jesus' words in this final sermon, and by the way, this is the final sermon that he delivers before we have what's called the upper room messages or discourses. So this forms a bridge. This famous sermon in three of the gospels forms a bridge from his time in the temple until he finally goes through the night of the Passover and then his betrayal and all of that. So this is kind of like his final sermon. It's a very important sermon. It's a sermon that's been studied by multitudes of people, broken down, analyzed, and you name it. Now the Preterist group says this. They say that there's no New Testament book that can be dated beyond 70 AD. The reason that they say that is because you can't have the book of Revelation, which they believe is fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem. So let me just be clear. Preterists believe that Revelation pretty much, not not as in totality, but pretty much was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So they take, you know, much of the language there as apocalyptic, sometimes hyperbole, extreme language, but it's all fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And they would say the book of Revelation even has really no future concern of ours. Now that that may be, this may be the first time that you're hearing this. So they have to say that Revelation has to be dated before 70, and they really have to say it's got to be dated between A.D. 65, 66 to allow for other things to occur. The traditional dating of the book of Revelation has been 95 A.D., 25 years after the fall of Jerusalem. M- many conservative scholars hold this date, and this date would be during the reign of Domitian. Now, I want to just explain this so if you guys run into this, you'll know what the evidence is. There's a reference in a church father called Irenaeus. The reference comes from about 180 AD. And he says that John wrote the revelation from the island of Patmos around 95 or during the latter half or the end of Domitian's reign. Domitian did not reign before 70 AD. So, The people who hold the late date say it happened during, he wrote it during Domitian's reign, Roman emperor. The folks that want the earlier date say that Revelation was written during the reign of Caesar Nero. And that Nero is the beast and he was a wild man and he did a lot of crazy things. In fact, the apostle Paul was killed during the reign of Nero. And so this is where the debate happens. And while I'll say that there are some interesting things that are brought out by preterists that I think we need to pay attention to, I think that they've kinda taken, in many cases, an extreme view of this section, and they ignore what I believe are future fulfillments to Jesus' words. So, behold, I've told you everything in advance, I'm talking now about predictive prophecy. Why should you care about predictive prophecy? Some of you may be thinking, I, don't, I could care less. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a pre-tribber, a post-tribber. I'm a pan-tribber. <laughs> However it all pans out, I don't care, right? <laughs> well, you know, I can understand why some people take that position. And just so you know, we're a church that holds a pre-millennial view. What does that mean? Here's what what we believe. We believe that there's gonna be a thousand-year reign of Christ. That's the word millennium, thousand, millennial. And that Jesus will appear at his second coming pre-millennial, before the thousand years. We believe he'll set up his kingdom. We believe there's gonna be a golden age. We believe Isaiah 2 and 11 with the the lion and the the wolf and the lamb and then the child playing by the hole of the cobra and there's peace. Uh, and here's the deal. When we think about the second coming, here's what the second coming means to me personally and practically. It means hope. That my God didn't just say, okay, good luck humans. Whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. I wound up the universe. I made you and good luck. No, he entered time and space in the time that we call Christmas and died for our sins and rose to defeat death and he's coming again. He has not left us all alone. Aren't you glad? This world can be a crazy and lonely place. And Jesus says, I'm coming again. I've gone to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's the second coming it's hope that everything that i see that's wrong is going to be made right again that there is going to be a time when jesus rules and reigns from jerusalem and things that were have been devastated by the sin of mankind will be made right again that's what the second coming means to me I don't just study the second coming so I can spout facts about, you know, history or eschatology. And by the way, if you hear eschatology, it comes from a word eschatos, meaning the study of the last things or the end times. So if you hear somebody say, I'm into eschatology, man, <laughs> then that's what they're saying. They like studying prophecy. And the Bible is filled with prophecy. And interestingly enough, the New Testament has prophecy as well. In fact, Jesus' words in Mark 13 are a prophecy. There's such an incredible prophecy that they were fulfilled largely, not all, but a large part was fulfilled in 70 AD to the T. Jesus died around 30 to 33 AD. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened, proving who he is that he's God, that he can predict the future with wholehearted certainty. Now, the New Testament does teach the second coming of Jesus, and I told first service, I'm not sure how many verses I will get through. This is gonna be a sermon done in parts because there's 37 verses in Mark 13, and I haven't done one of them yet. (laughs) Amen? So I won't keep you here all afternoon, but I, I will introduce the subject, and I got to verse 14, at first service, and so that's what I hope to accomplish this morning. But I wanna introduce the subject of the second coming because there are some people who, you know, in extreme preterist circles, they don't even believe in a literal second coming anymore. They're dismissing that Jesus is literally coming again. Does the Bible teach that? Let's turn to the book of Acts, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter one. Jesus has spent 40 days talking to the apostles about the kingdom of God. Uh, 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared with many convincing proofs. He presented himself alive. That's what Luke tells us in Acts 1.3. And so they had questions for him, and uh, he gathered them together. And in verse 7 of Acts 1, just to get to the main point of this particular sermon, Acts 1.7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus will say in the Olivet Discourse that no one knows the time of his coming, not even the angels or the sun. I think Jesus knows them in his divine nature, but it's been argued that in his human nature, perhaps he didn't know. And so they've been asking, they say, verse six, Acts one, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Are we entering into the golden age? Are you gonna sit on David's throne? That's their question. He said, it's not for you to know the times, verse seven, or season or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. This is called the ascension. And a cloud received him out of their sight. We believe that's a glory cloud, not a rain cloud. And as they were gazing intently, you could imagine this experience. The apostles watch him get lifted up. He's resurrected. He's bearing the scars of the cross. He's very human. And he's all of a sudden raised up, lifted up, verse 9, while they're looking. How big would your mouth be open as you, oh, right? And they watched him. He was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? In a physical resurrected body received by a glory cloud And he's coming back in the same way. And where he delivered the sermon from is where he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, which is what the book of Zechariah teaches us. And that mountain is going to go through a uh, recreation. It's gonna split, okay? So this is what the Bible teaches. God has fixed this day. They were wondering about the day. God has fixed the day. If you keep going in your Bible and go to Uh, 1 Thessalonians, go to your right, 1 Thessalonians. I just wanna show you a few of the verses that teach the second coming of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, if you look at verse uh, 16, the people had questions about how this all worked and some of the people were dying in the church and they wondered, well, did they miss the rapture or what's going on? And Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, first Thessalonians four sixteen, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven. It will be the Lord Himself. He is coming again. Then we who are alive, verse 17, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, I think the glory clouds there to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Here's the point of the teaching. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you go to 2 Thessalonians, it's the next book to your right. Look at chapter two. The subject is the man of lawlessness. Many uh, equate him with the antichrist of a future day. Paul's talking about him. He calls him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, the son of destruction. Talks about him taking his seat in the temple of God and Raising himself up, uh, he wants worship is basically the way you'd say it. Here's what it says. It says, and then that lawless one, verse eight, 2 Thessalonians 2, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by what? The appearing of his coming. Jesus Christ is coming again. Keep going to your right and go to 2 Timothy chapter four. The last chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote in his lifetime, he's in prison, he's gonna die at the hands of Caesar Nero, and he says these words, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. He says, I fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up, 2 Timothy 4, 8, for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved what is appearing. Hey folks, this is Pastor Michael, and I appreciate you listening to today's message. I want to tell you about the store at walkintruth.com. On the store, we have a brand new teaching up. It's on the occult. It's called The Dark Dangers of the Occult, and we have taught on the subject of demon possession And we also have taught on the subject of Wicca or witchcraft, and there's more to come. And you need to know about this subject. You need to know what's going on with the occult, what the Bible says about it. It warns about it being forbidden. It warns that you should not mess with it. But there's also something else. We need to reach out to people in love with the truth of Jesus who've gotten involved in the occult. You can have access to this information, these resources to learn more and to become a more effective ambassador for Christ. It's all available at the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, or if you'd like to visit our church here in Corona, California, visit our website, walkintruth.com.